good afternoon. You're listening to Let the Bible Speak. Let the Bible Speak is the radio ministry of the Free Presbyterian Church. Stephen Pollock is the pastor of the Free Presbyterian Church of Malvern, Pennsylvania. Thank you for joining us today as he opens the Word of God and lets the Bible speak. Well, please turn together in the Word of God tonight to Nehemiah chapter 4. Nehemiah 4, let's hear the Word of God. But it came to pass that when Sanballat heard uh, that we builded the wall, he was wroth and took great indignation and mocked the Jews. And he spake before his brethren and the army of Samaria and said, What do these feeble Jews? Will they fortify themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they revive the stones of the heaps of the rubbish which are burned? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was by him, and he said, Even that which they build, if a fox go up, he shall even break down their stone wall. Hear, O war God, for we are despised, and turn their reproach upon their own head, and give them for a prey in the land of captivity, and cover not their iniquity, and let not their sin be blotted out from before thee, for they have provoked thee to anger before the builders. So built we the wall, and all the wall was joined together unto the half thereof, for the people had a mind to work. But it came to pass that when Sambalat and Tobiah and the Arabians and the Ammonites and the Ashtarites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were made up, and that the breaches began to be stopped, then they were very wroth, and conspired all of them together to come and to fight against Jerusalem and to hinder it. Nevertheless, we made our prayer unto our God, and set a watch against them day and night because of them. And Judah said, The strength of the bearers of burdens is decayed, and there is much rubbish, and so that we are not able to build the wall. And their adversaries said, And they shall not know, and neither see, till we come in the midst among them, and slay them, and cause the work to cease. And it came to pass that when the Jews which dwelt by them came, they said unto us ten times, From all places whence she shall return unto us, they will be upon you. Therefore set I in the lower places behind the wall, and on the higher places I even set the people after their families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and rose up and said unto the nobles and to the rulers, and to the rest of the people, Be not ye afraid of them. Remember the Lord, which is great and terrible, and fight for your brethren, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your houses. And it came to pass, when our enemies heard that it was known unto us, and God had brought their counsel to naught, that we returned all of us to the wall, every one unto his work. And it came to pass from that time forth that the half of my servants wrought in the work, and the other half of them held both the spears, the shields, and the bows, and the habergeons, and the rulers were behind all the house of Judah. They which builded on the wall, and they, they that bear burdens, with those that laded every one with one of his hands, wrought in the work, and with the other hand held a weapon. For the builders, every one had his sword girded by his side, and so builded. And he that sounded the trumpet was by me. And I said unto the nobles, and to the rulers, and to the rest of the people, The work is great and large, and we are separated upon the wall one far from another. 
In what place therefore ye hear the sound of the trumpet, resort ye thither unto us, or God shall fight for us. So we labored in the work, and half of them held the spears from the rising of the morning till the stars appeared. And likewise, at the same time, said unto the people, Let every one with the servant lodge within Jerusalem, that in the night they may be a guard to us and labor on the day. So neither I, nor my brethren, nor my servants, nor the men of the guard which followed me, none of us put off our clothes, saving that every one put them off for washing. Uh, the work of God, it never progresses smoothly and without hindrances. It will progress, but not without trial and trouble. You see, remember, uh, the very promise that we claim regarding the church of Christ is a promise that is couched in the language of conflict. We do believe, we pray about it almost every time we're in prayer, Christ will build his church. But it's built. It will be built in a time of warfare so that the gates of hell will not be able to stand against the advances of the church militant. It's a conflict text. But such conflict is inevitable in light of the devil's opposition to the work of God. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. The devil is clearly opposed to the progress of the gospel. The devil is opposed to the edification of the church of Christ. And such opposition will ensure that progress will always be in the context of trouble. Always. And thus, Nehemiah chapter 4 is emblematic of God's work in every age, in every place. It is the progress of God's work, but in the context of trouble and trials and hindrances. All looks very well at the end of chapter 3. There is unity and there is progress. The people are working together. All seems to be going very, very well, but trouble is just around the corner. And when you study Nehemiah, you will see there are striking similarities to the book of Acts. The day of Pentecost ends with a multitude of souls being saved and unity. The people of God, they're giving themselves to the apostles' doctrine. They're giving themselves to fellowship and to prayer. And they're doing so with one accord. But just around the corner, indeed, Acts, Acts chapters 3 through 9, uh, they, are, they, they give a, a record of various forms of trouble in the work of God. After Pentecost comes repeated troubles. You have the persecution of the Jewish leaders trying to silence the work of God. They, they believe that uh, the work of God will, will, will come to nothing. They don't believe it's God's work. But they seek to silence the preachers of the gospel. You see, of course, also then, greater trouble as time goes on. Realizing this is no flash-in-the-pan work, the opposition increases. And so you read of the death of Stephen and you hear of Saul breathing out threatenings. Trouble without the church and trouble within the church. You see the, uh, the false actions, the deceit of Ananias and Sapphira. You see the disputes with the widows in Acts chapter 6. You see all of these things. There is trouble in the context of progress, even as souls are being saved. 
They're being saved in times of trouble. And sometimes we have a false view of revival. We believe that revival will be such a, a blessing that all will go smoothly in the work of God. I tell you, if God brings revival, trouble will follow. It's guaranteed. Opposition always comes against the progress of God's work. And so here in Nehemiah chapter 4, we see that there are hindrances. But we also see how they are overcome. But note to begin with then the hindrances themselves. The hindrances come in two forms. Opposition from without and discouragement from within. In verse 8 we read about this opposition and their purpose. And we see that they are conspiring together to hinder the work of God. That, that is the purpose. The devil would seek to hinder the influence of the church of Christ to hinder the preaching of the gospel, that the gospel would not go forward to as many people with such clarity, but rather it would be muddied and confused, hindering the progress of the church of Christ. And so here we read how the opposition arises, continues, and is repeated as the work goes on. The initial opposition we read in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. In verse 1 we read that Sambalat hears that the wall is being builded, he is wroth. And the response is in verse number 6. Of course they pray and then they keep on building. And again when the first wave of opposition comes, the wave of mockery we'll see shortly. After that wave there is prayer and then the work continues. And as the work continues, so the opposition continues. Verse seven, Verses 7 and 8. But looking at this opposition, notice a few things. Notice its motivation. Verse number 1, he was wroth. Verse 7, very wroth. The motivation behind the opposition is anger. Jerusalem, if it is rebuilded and prospering, will give trouble and bring competition and trade to Sambalat and the Samaritans. They're mentioned here in verses 1 and 2, then along with the Ammonites in verse number 3, and then the Arabians and the Asherites in verse number 7. These are the neighboring, the neighboring nations surrounding Jerusalem and the, the land of Israel. Jerusalem's location will be a threat to Sambalat's economic supremacy. Essentially, the prosperity of Jerusalem will prevent the surrounding people from going about their usual business. I think this suggests to us some of the reasons why the world opposes the church. A spiritually vibrant church is a nuisance to the living of the world around. Men love darkness and hate light because their deeds are evil. They do not want the light of the gospel exposing their wickedness. And so as long as the church will tolerate the sins of the world, well then the world will leave the church alone. But as the church stands against the sins of the world, preaches against it, seeks to bring change in society, well then the world's wrath will be against the church. Leave us alone, says the world, and we will leave you alone. But you begin to stand against our wickedness, well then we will stand against your freedom. We will stand against your freedom to preach Christ, and your freedom to preach in the public square, and your freedom to defend the very principles that you hold according to the Word of God. A healthy church 
will by its example be salt in the world. Such will be an irritant to the world in which we live. So the world will be indeed become wrathful and angry. Happens to be the case whenever God's at work that the world is hindered in their sins and hence they become wrathful. We see that, of course, in the New Testament as well. Acts chapter 19, we read about the events in Ephesus and Demetrius, a silversmith. He's making idols. And suddenly, multitudes are being converted who no longer are going to buy his idols. There's a hindrance to his prosperity. And what does he do? He is full of wrath. Verse 28, they all are. He stirs up trouble in Ephesus. So much so that there's a riot that ensues. The ungodly, they want to continue in their sin. And when God prospers his church, there is wrath that results. We also see in the second place the mockery that they use. Their motivation is wrath, but the mockery is here. Uh, we saw mockery already in chapter 2 in the verse 19. They laughed us to scorn and despised us. Here it intensifies in verse number 4. Or here we read it from Nehemiah's response in verse number 4. For we are despised. Look at verse 2. What do these feeble Jews Will they fortify themselves? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish? And Sambalat is mocking them, emphasizing the task is too great. The obstacles to progress are too many. And the work they've already achieved will fall at the least challenge. A fox, a light animal by and large, a fox will walk upon the wall, says Tobiah. And these supposedly strong stone walls will crumble around. The world will always despise the church as being essentially incapable of doing anything dramatic or significant. The spirit of the Philistine is the spirit of the age. They looked upon David, Goliath did, and he disdained him for he is but a youth and ruddy and of a fair countenance. The world looks at the church. What is your mission? To preach Christ to every nation. How could you possibly accomplish such a task? You're such a small band. Oh, so, well, oh, perhaps a mission is simply to preach Christ to this neighborhood. How will you achieve that? There is rubbish everywhere. How can you possibly achieve anything in progress in the Word of God for all that you are and all of your weakness? What are your, what are your instruments? The Word of God and prayer. Oh, what are they before such unbelief? How can the Word of God and prayer overcome the unbelief of this age? You have no hope. And sure, look at your church. You build a few walls. We just blow upon them and they fall down. The church is continually falling apart. The least little trouble and people leave and they, they fly off to some other place. Your walls are nothing. You think they're stone, but they're, they're nothing. They're nothing before the fox of the evil one. And so they mock us. What is interesting is that Nehemiah does not contradict this assessment. 
The world sees our weakness. But we see our weakness. What the world doesn't see is the power and majesty of God. But we are conscious of our weakness. There's a tremendously uh, precious verse in Proverbs chapter 30. The conies are but a feeble folk. Same word. Feeble folk. Yet they make their houses in the rocks. And of themselves they have no strength. And of ourselves we have no strength. But our very weakness takes us to the rock of refuge and strength that is in God. And in God's strength we place our weakness. And so there's mockery here. And there is also malice. For now, just keep noting the theme of this opposition. And note that as the work continues in verse number 6, then there is the increase in the opposition. They are very wroth. Again, I've already mentioned to you the events in Acts. Acts chapter 3 and 4, the opposition is, is relatively mild. Arrests are followed by release. It's a mild form of opposition because really the leaders don't believe the work of the disciples will amount to anything. But by the time you get to the death of Stephen and you get to Saul coming in Acts chapter 9, you see that the wrath of the ungodly has increased against the work of Christ. Malice. I sometimes wonder why we know so little of this today. Oh yeah, things aren't easy for the church. But by and large, we're not living under significant threat in this part of the world, are we? And I know the answer always is within our hearts, but it will increase. It's going to get worse. Don't, don't worry, preacher. We're, we're going to make sure that things get worse because we know it should get worse. But rather, should we not be challenging ourselves? That could it be that the reason we have things so easy is because the church has been happy to compromise for the last number of decades? Prepared to put a blind eye to the sins of the world? Prepared to allow perhaps the, the most obvious sin of all in the church? That the sin of this nation is the sin of materialism and secularism? And we've allowed that in the church? And so we can't point a finger at the church because, sure, the, the world because we're incredibly guilty in the church. And thus the world is quite happy with the church. I can be a worldly person and the church has nothing to say against me. In every age, biblically and extra-biblically, when God's people take a stand for Christ and against sin, and when they progress in the work of God, there is always trouble that follows. And so there is the hindrance of trouble without. But there is also then, more internally, discouragement within. Verse number 10, listen to the words. And Judah said, the strength of the bearers of burdens is decayed, and there is much rubbish. Listen, so that we are not able. Those are words of discouragement. Verse 11, what they're saying is the persecutors will cause the work to stop. That's why it finishes. And cause the work to cease. Verse number 12, they're saying, wherever we go, they'll attack us. Anywhere we go, they're going to be right upon us. 
The people of God, they should not live in a state blind to the problems without the church of Christ. Yet it is easy to fall off the tightrope into abject pessimism. They felt their weariness. The Lord's work in all areas is a labor. We've seen that in these studies. The word labor is used. Labor is meant to promote tiredness. And thus, if we're engaged in God's work, there should be a weariness. Paul recognizes that by telling the readers, do not be weary in well-doing. Well-doing can tend to weariness. And people feel that here. They, they feel that we are not able. They see the task and they, they see all the, the rubbish. It's the word for rubble, okay? So the walls have been demolished and there's all this pile of broken down materials. And there's a progress of the work is hindered because the walls that once stood have been destroyed and they're hindering the work of God. And sometimes we see that. We, we feel the effects of previous difficulties. We, we feel the effects of, of, of times when the walls of God's church have been broken down among us. We see our sin. We see our past failures. And we're conscious of the work as being very difficult. They see the danger that comes from without. They see their adversaries. They know there are those who are there who would stand against them and seek to cause the work to cease. And what they saw was accurate. At no point are they, are they actually being unrealistic about their troubles. These are real things. This is not imaginary. This is not pretend. I think we are painfully aware as a church of the obstacles in our working for the Lord. The work is difficult. Little is being done. Few stones are being added to the church. Yet the way that this is portrayed in this portion indicates that the spirit and the attitude of the Jews here is not positive. They have a negative attitude here. And we know that because Nehemiah responds by praying and telling them, verse 14, Be not ye afraid of them. Remember the Lord. And so what we see in their spirit is a forgetfulness of God. That their spirit is one that's looking to their own weakness and to the difficulty of the work, and they are not looking to the Lord. In prayer, we often pray in such a way that, that we look upon the difficulties. We lament our weakness. We lament our inabilities. We, we see all of these things in our praying. In our praying, whilst we acknowledge our sin, we acknowledge our failures, we acknowledge the challenge of the task, yet we are exhorted by Nehemiah's example here to remember the Lord, which is great and terrible. We've got to focus upon the Lord. And so having thought about the hindrances, note just very briefly the response to those hindrances. Verse 9 is a summary of the response. Nevertheless, we made our prayer unto our God and set a watch against them day and night because of them. Nehemiah prays. 
in response to both periods of opposition. Verse 4 and 5, we find him praying, Hear, O our God, for we are despised. He prays, verse number 9, Nevertheless, we made our prayer unto our God. He focuses on the Lord's mercy. Verse 4, Hear, O our God, for we are despised. I think Nehemiah rests in the knowledge that God feels the affliction of his people. Listen to the words of Isaiah 63. The verse number 9, In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel's presence saved them. In his love and in his pity he redeemed them, and he bare them and carried them all the days of old. I do believe we can turn to God and say to the Lord, just look at how weak we are. Look how afflicted we are. Look how impoverished we are. Would you not look upon us in our afflictions and then come and act on our behalf? He focuses also on the Lord's justice. We have no right to wish ill upon our enemies, but we have the right to pray against God's enemies. Not our personal enemies. We are to leave room for the wrath of God. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. But when those stand against God's work, we have the right to pray that their work would not prosper and that God would turn that work against themselves. And so we read of the apostles in Acts chapter 4, when they are facing persecution and opposition, they simply pray, and now, Lord, behold their threatenings. You leave it with the Lord. And as Nehemiah prays, he also plans. He sets plans and actions to defend the city. He shores up the gaps. He arms the people. He organizes shifts. He provides a trumpet to gather the people together. All these things, and there are lessons in them all. For now, just simply think of this. Prayer without work is presumption, while work without prayer is self-confidence. For us to pray for God to build His church here, and yet to sit back and do nothing, is presuming upon God. Our prayers must always be matched by our determination to serve God and to work for God. Let's not work without prayer, but let's not pray without determination to work. The people were minded to work, verse number six. We do labor for God in the context of warfare. We need to seek the Lord so that as a people, we would have a mind to work. Remembering in verse number 20, that the Lord shall fight for us. So then, verse 21, we will then labor in the work. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Let the Bible Speak from Malvern Free Presbyterian Church. We extend an invitation to all to join us as we worship the Lord each week. You will be made very welcome. The church is situated at 80 Mallon Road, Malvern, Pennsylvania. We meet for worship on the Lord's Day at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. A Bible study and prayer meeting is also held on Tuesday evening at 7 p.m. If you'd like more information about the gospel or the church, please call 610-993-3170 or email malvernfpc at yahoo.com. We preach Christ crucified. Thank you.